Section 47 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Karen. Ulysses by James Joyce, Part 3, The Nostos. Episode 16, Eumaeus, Part 2. Adjacent to the men's public urinal, they perceive an ice-cream car round which a group of presumably Italians in heated altercation were getting rid of voluble expressions in their vivacious language in a particularly animated way, there being some little differences between the parties. Putana Madonna! Cesidia i quattrini! O ragione? Culorato! Intendiam nocci! Mezzi sovrano più! Dice lui pero! Mezzo! Farabuto! Mortaci sui! Ma ascolta! Sinca la testa più! Mr. Bloom and Stephen entered the cabin's shelter, an unpretentious wooden structure, where prior to then he had rarely have ever been before, the former having previously whispered to the latter a few hints, and then to the keeper of it, said to be the once famous skin-the-goat Fitzharris, the invincible, though he could not vouch for the actual facts, which quite possibly there was not one vestige of truth in. A few moments later saw our two noctambulists safely seated in a discreet corner, only to be greeted by stares from the decidedly miscellaneous collection of waifs and strays and other nondescript specimens of the genus Homo already there, engaged in eating and drinking, diversified by conversation, for whom they seemingly formed an object of marked curiosity. Now touching a cup of coffee, Mr. Bloom ventured to plausibly suggest to break the ice. It occurs to me you ought to sample something in the shape of solid food, say, a roll of some description. Accordingly, his first act was with characteristic sang-froid to order these commodities quietly. The hoi polo of Jarvies or stevedores, or whatever they were, after cursory examination, turned their eyes apparently dissatisfied away, though one red-bearded, bibulous individual portion of whose hair was grayish, a sailor, probably, still stared for some appreciable time before transferring his rapt attention to the floor. Mr. Bloom, availing himself of the right of free speech, he having just a bowing acquaintance with the language in dispute, though, to be sure, rather in a quandary over volio, remarked to his protégé in an audible tone of voice, apropos of the battle royale in the street, which was still raging fast and furious. A beautiful language— I mean, for singing purposes. Why do you not write your poetry in that language? Belle poetria, it is so melodious and full. Belle donna, voglio. Stephen, who was trying his dead best to yawn if he could, suffering from lassitude generally, replied, To fill the ear of a cow-elephant, they were haggling over money. Is that so? Mr. Bloom asked. Of course. He subjoined pensively at the inward reflection of there being more languages to start with than were absolutely necessary. It may be only the southern glamour that surrounds it. The keeper of the shelter in the middle of this tete-a-tete -tete put a boiling swimming cup of a choice concoction labelled coffee on the table, and a rather antediluvian specimen of a bun, or so it seemed, after which he beat a retreat to his counter. Mr. Bloom determining to have a good square look at him later on, so as not to appear to. For which reason, he encouraged Stephen to proceed with his eyes, while he did the honours by surreptitiously pushing the cup of what was temporarily supposed to be called coffee gradually nearer him. Sounds are impostures, 
Stephen said after a pause of some little time, like names. Cicero, Podmore, Napoleon, Mr. Goodbody, Jesus, Mr. Doyle. Shakespeare's were as common as Murphy's. What's in a name? Yes, to be sure, Mr. Bloom unaffectedly concurred. Of course. Our name was changed, too, he added, pushing the so-called roll across. The red-bearded sailor, who had his weather eye on the newcomers, boarded Stephen, whom he had singled out for attention in particular, squarely, by asking, "'And what might your name be?' Just in the nick of time, Mr. Bloom touched his companion's boot, but Stephen, apparently disregarding the warm pressure from an unexpected quarter, answered, "'Dedalus!' The sailor stared at him heavily from a pair of drowsy, baggy eyes, rather bunged up from excessive use of booze, preferably good old Hollands and water. "'You know Simon Dedalus?' he asked at length. "'I've heard of him,' Stephen said. Mr. Bloom was all at sea for a moment, seeing the others evidently eavesdropping, too. "'He's Irish,' the seaman bold affirmed, staring still in much the same way and nodding. "'All Irish.' "'All too Irish.' Stephen rejoined. As for Mr. Bloom, he could neither make head or tail of the whole business, and he was just asking himself what possible connection, when the sailor of his own accord turned to the other occupants of the shelter with the remark, "'I seen him shoot two eggs off two bottles at fifty yards, over his shoulder, the left hand dead shot.' Though he was slightly hampered by an occasional stammer, and his gestures being also clumsy as it was, still he did his best to explain." bottles out there say fifty yards measured eggs on the bottles cocks his gun over his shoulder aims he turned his body half round shut up his right eye completely then he screwed his features up some way sideways and glared out into the night with an unprepossessing cast of countenance Pum! he then shouted once the entire audience waited anticipating an additional detonation, there being still a further egg. Pum! He shouted twice. Egg two evidently demolished, he nodded and winked, adding bloodthirstily, Buffalo Bill shoots to kill. Never missed, nor he never will. A silence ensued, till Mr. Bloom, for agreeableness's sake, just felt like asking him whether it was for a marksmanship competition like the Bisley. Beg pardon, the sailor said. "'Long ago,' Mr. Bloom pursued, without flinching a hair's breadth. "'Why?' the sailor replied, relaxing to a certain extent, under the magic influence of diamond-cut diamond. "'It might be a matter of ten years. He toured the wide world with Hengler's Royal Circus. I seen him do that in Stockholm.' "'Curious coincidence,' Mr. Bloom confided to Stephen, unobtrusively. "'Murphy's my name,' the sailor continued. D.B. Murphy of Carrigolo. Know where that is? Queenstown Harbor, Stephen replied. That's right, the sailor said. Fort Camden and Fort Carlisle. That's where I hails from. I belongs there. That's where I hails from. My little woman's down there. She's waiting for me, I know. For England, home and beauty. She's my own true wife I haven't seen for seven years now, sailing about. Mr. Bloom could easily picture his advent on the scene the homecoming to the mariner's roadside shielding after having diddled Davy Jones a rainy night with a blind moon. Across the world, for a wife, 
Quite a number of stories there were on that particular Alice Benbolt topic. Enoch Arden and Rip Van Winkle, and does anybody hereabouts remember Cack O'Leary, a favorite? A most trying declamation piece by the way of poor John Casey. And a bit of perfect poetry in its own small way. Never about the runaway wife coming back, however much devoted to the absentee. The face at the window. Judge of his astonishment when he finally did breast the tape and the awful truth dawned upon him and anent his better half, wrecked in his affections. You little expected me, but I've come to stay and make a fresh start. There she sits, a grass widow, at the self-same fireside, believes me dead, rocked in the cradle of the deep. And there sits Uncle Chubb, or Tompkin as the case might be, the publican of the crown and anchor, in shirt-sleeves, eating rump-steak and onions. No chair for father. Brew the wind! Her brand-new arrival is on her knee, post-mortem child. With a high row and a randy row, and my galloping, tearing dandy-o, bow to the inevitable, grin and bear it. I remain with much love your broken-hearted husband, D.B. Murphy. The sailor, who scarcely seemed to be a Dublin resident, turned to one of the Jarvies with a request. "'You don't happen to have such a thing as a spare chaw about you?' The Jarvie address, as it happened, had not but the keeper, took a die of plug from his good jacket hanging on a nail, and the desired object was passed, from hand to hand. "'Thank you,' the sailor said. He deposited the quid in his gob, and chewing, and with some slow stammers, proceeded. "'We come up this morning eleven o'clock.' The three-maester arose, fiend from Bridgewater with bricks I shipped to get over. Paid off this afternoon. There's my discharge, see? D.B. Murphy, A.B.S. In confirmation of which statement he extricated from an inside pocket and handed to his neighbor a not-very-clean-looking folded document. You must have seen a fair share of the world, the keeper remarked, leaning on the counter. "'Why,' the sailor answered, upon reflection upon it, "'I've circumnavigated a bit since I first joined on. "'I was in the Red Sea. "'I was in China, and North America, and South America. "'We was chased by pirates, one voyage. "'I seen icebergs plenty, growlers. "'I was in Stockholm and the Black Sea, "'the Dardanelles under Captain Dalton, "'the best bloody man that ever scuttled a ship. "'I seen Russia, Gosparty, you that's how the Russians praise. "'You seen queer sights, don't be talking,' put in a jarvey. "'Why?' the sailor said, shifting his partially chewed plug. "'I seen queer things, too, ups and downs. "'I seen a crocodile bite the fluke of an anchor, same as I chew that quid.' "'He took out of his mouth the pulpy quid and, lodging it between his teeth, bit ferociously. Run like that!' "'and I have seen man-eaters in Peru that eats corpses and the livers of horses. "'Look here. Here they are. A friend of mine sent me.' "'He fumbled out a picture postcard from his inside pocket, "'which seemed to be, in its way, a species of repository, "'and pushed it along the table. "'The printed matter on it stated, "'Chosa de Indeos, Beni Bolivia.' "'All focused their attention at the scene exhibited, "'a group of savage women in striped loincloths, "'squatted, blinking, suckling, frowning, sleeping amid a swarm of infants, there must have been quite a score of them, outside some primitive shanties of osier. Choose cocoa all day, the communicative tarpaulin added. Stomachs like 
bread graters, cuts off their ditties when they can't bear no more children. See them sitting there, stark, ballock, naked, eating a dead horse's liver raw? His postcard proved a center of attraction for Messieurs the Greenhorns for several minutes, if not more. Know how to keep them off? he inquired generally. Nobody volunteering a statement, he winked, saying, Glass. That boggles em. Glass. Mr. Bloom, without evincing surprise, unostentatiously turned over the card to peruse the partially obliterated address and postmark. It ran as follows, Tarjeta Postal Señor E. Boudin, Galeria Beche, Santiago, Chile. There was no message, evidently, as he took particular notice. Though not an implicit believer in the lurid story narrated, or the egg-sniping transaction, for that matter, despite William Tell and the Lazarillo Don César de Bazan incident, depicted in Maritana, on which occasion the former's ball passed through the latter's hat. Having detected a discrepancy between his name, assuming he was the person he represented himself to be, and not sailing under false colors, after having boxed the compass on the strict QT somewhere, and the fictitious addressee of the missive, which made him nourish some suspicion of our friend's bona fides, Nevertheless, it reminded him away of a long-cherished plan he meant to one day realize some um, Wednesday or Saturday of traveling to London via Long Sea, not to say that he had ever traveled extensively to any great extent, but he was at heart a born adventurer, though by a trick of fate he had consistently remained a landlubber, except you call going to Hollyhead, which was his longest. Martin Cunningham frequently said he would work a pass through Egan, but some deuced hitch or other eternally cropped up, with the net result that the scheme fell through. But even suppose it did come to planking down the needful and breaking Boyd's heart, it was not so dear, purse permitting. A few guineas at the outside, considering the fare to Mullingar, where he figured on going was five and six there and back. The trip would benefit health, on account of the bracing ozone, and be in every way thoroughly pleasurable, except for a chap whose liver was out of order, seeing the different places along the route, Plymouth, Falmouth, Southampton, and so on, culminating in an instructive tour of the sites of the great metropolis, the spectacle of our modern Babylon, where doubtless he would see the greatest improvement, Tower, Abbey, Wealth of Park Lane, to renew acquaintance with. Another thing just struck him as a by no means bad notion was he might have a gaze around on the spot to see about trying to make arrangements about a concert tour of summer music, embracing the most prominent pleasure resorts, Margate, with mixed bathing and first-rate hydros and spas, Eastbourne, Scarborough, Margate, and so on, beautiful Bournemouth, the Channel Islands, and similar bijou spots, which might prove highly remunerative. Not, of course, with a hole-in-corner scratch company or local ladies on the job. Witness Mrs. C.P. McCoy's type, lend me your valise and I'll post you the ticket. No, something top-notch. An all-star Irish cast, the Tweedy Flower Grand Opera Company, with his own legal consort as leading lady, as a sort of counterblast to the Elster Grimes and Moody Manners. Perfectly simple manner. And he was quite sanguine of success, providing puffs in the local papers could be managed by some fellow with a bit of bounce, who could pull the indispensable wires and thus combine business with pleasure. But who? That was the rub. Also, without being actually positive, it struck him a great field was to be opened up in the line of opening up new routes to keep pace with the times, apropos of the Fishguard-Rosslayer route, which, 
it was mooted, was once more on the tapas in the circumlocution departments, with the usual quantity of red tape and dilly-dallying of effete fogeydom and dunderheads, generally. A great opportunity there certainly was for push and enterprise to meet the traveling needs of the public at large, the average man, i.e. Brown, Robinson, and co. It was a subject of regret, and absurd as well on the face of it, and no small blame to our vaunted society that the man in the street, when the system really needed toning up, for the matter of a couple of paltry pounds, was debarred from seeing more of the world they lived in, instead of being always and ever cooped up, since my old stick in the mud took me for a wife. After all, hang it, they had their eleven and more humdrum months of it, and merited a radical change of venue after the grind of sea life in the summertime for choice, when Dame Nature is at her spectacular best, constituting nothing short of a new lease of life. There were equally excellent opportunities for vacationists in the home island, delightful sylvan spots for rejuvenation, offering a plethora of attractions, as well as a bracing tonic for the system in and around Dublin and its picturesque environs even pulafuca to which there was a stream tram but also farther away from the madding crowd in wicklow rightly termed the garden of ireland an ideal neighbourhood for elderly wheelmen so long as it didn't come down and in the wilds of donegal where if report spoke true the coup d'oeil was exceedingly grand though the last name locality was not easily gettable so that the influx of visitors was not as yet all that it might be, considering the signal benefits to be derived from it, while health, with its historic associations and otherwise Silken, Thomas, Grace O'Malley, George the Fourth, rhododendrons several hundred feet above sea level, was a favorite haunt with all sorts and conditions of men, especially in the spring, when young men's fancy, though it had its own toll of deaths by falling off the cliffs, by design or accidentally, usually, by the way, on their left leg, it being only about three-quarters of an hour's run from the pillar. Because, of course, up-to-date tourist travelling was yet merely in its infancy, so to speak, and the accommodation left much to be desired. Interesting to fathom, it seemed to him for a motive of curiosity pure and simple, was whether it was the traffic that created the route, or vice versa, or the two sides, in fact. He turned back the other side of the card, picture and passed it along to stephen i seen a chinese one time related the doughy narrator that had little pills like putty and he put them in the water and they opened and every pill was something different one was a ship another was a house another was a flower cooks rats in your soup he appetizingly added that Shink does. Possibly, perceiving an expression of dubiosity on their faces, the globetrotter went on, adhering to his adventures. And I seen a man killed in Trieste by an Italian chap. Knife in his back. Knife like that. Will speaking, he produced a dangerous-looking clasp-knife, quite in keeping with his character, and held it in the striking position. In a knocking-shop it was count of a trion between two smugglers. Fellow hid behind a door, come up behind him, like that. Prepare to meet your God, says he. Chuck! It went into his back up to the butt. His heavy glance, drowsily roaming about, kind of defied their further questions, even if they should by any chance want to. That's a good bit of steel, repeated he, examining his formidable stiletto. After which harrowing denouement, sufficient to appall the stoutest, he snapped the blade to and stowed the weapon in question away, as before, in his chamber of horrors, otherwise pocket. "'They're great for the cold steel,' 
somebody who was evidently quite in the dark said for the benefit of them all. That was why they thought the park murders of the Invincibles was done by foreigners on account of them using knives. At this remark, passed obviously in the spirit of where ignorance is bliss, Mr. B. and Stephen, each in his own particular way, both instinctively exchanged meaning glances. In a religious silence of the strictly entre new variety, however, towards where Skin the Goat, alias the Keeper, not turning a hair, was drawing spurts of liquid from his boiler affair. His inscrutable face, which was really a work of art, a perfect study in itself, beggaring description, conveyed the impression that he didn't understand one jot of what was going on. Funny, very. There ensued a somewhat lengthy pause. One man was reading in fits and starts a stained by coffee evening journal. Another the card with the natives chosa day, another the seaman's discharge. Mr. Bloom, so far as he was personally concerned, was just pondering in pensive mood. He vividly recollected when the occurrence alluded to take place, as well as yesterday, roughly some scores of years previously in the days of the land troubles, when it took the civilized world by storm, figuratively speaking, early in the eighties, eighty-one to be correct, when he was just turned fifteen. Aye, boss. The sailor broke in. Give us back them papers. The request being complied with, he clawed them up with a scrape. Have you seen the rock of Gibraltar? Mr. Bloom inquired. The sailor grimaced, chewing in a way that might be read as yes, aye, or no. Aye, you've touched there too, Mr. Bloom said. Europa Point, thinking he had, in the hope the rover might possibly buy some reminiscences, but he failed to do so simply letting spurt a jet of spew into the sawdust and shook his head with a sort of lazy scorn what year would that be about mr b interrogated can you recall the boats our swad distant sailor munched heavily a while hungrily before answering i'm tired of all them rocks in the sea he said and boats and ships salt junk all the time tired seemingly he ceased his questioner, perceiving that he was not likely to get a great deal of change out of such a wily old customer, fell to wool-gathering on the enormous dimensions of the water about the globe. Suffice it to say that, as a casual glance at the map revealed, it covered fully three-fourths of it, and he fully realized accordingly what it meant to rule the waves. On more than one occasion, a dozen at the lowest, near the North Bowl at Dollymount, he had remarked a superannuated old salt, evidently derelict seated habitually near the not particularly redolent sea on the wall, staring quite obliviously at it, and it at him, dreaming of fresh woods and pastures, new as someone somewhere sings. And it left him wondering why. Possibly he had tried to find out the secret for himself, floundering up and down the antipodes, and all that sort of thing, and over and under, well, not exactly under, tempting the fates. And the odds were twenty to nil, there was really no secret about it at all. Nevertheless, without going into the minutiae of the business, the eloquent fact remained that the sea was there in all its glory, and in the natural course of things somebody or other had to sail on it and fly in the face of providence, though it merely went to show how people usually contrived to load that sort of onus onto the other fellow, like the hell idea and the lottery and insurance, which were run on identically the same lines, so that for that very reason, if no other, Lifeboat Sunday was a highly laudable institution to which the public at large, no matter where living, inland or seaside, as the case might be, having it brought home to them like that, should extend its gratitude also to the harbour masters and coast guard service, who had to man the rigging and push off and out 
amid the elements, whatever the season. When duty called, Ireland expects that every man, and so on, and sometimes had a terrible time of it in the winter time, not forgetting the Irish lights, Kish and the others, liable to capsize at any moment, rounding which he once with his daughter had experienced some remarkably choppy, not to say stormy, weather. End of section 47. Recording by Karen.